Episode 93, News About Telehealth After Discharge. Today I speak with Ted Spooner, who is the CEO of RespondWell. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Telehealth is growing up. And I know this because it's not just one homogeneous box anymore, but a tree trunk with a growing number of branches and offshoots. One of these branches is telerehabilitation, which is what happens when a patient leaves the hospital, for example, after a joint replacement. It's getting much more sophisticated than just two webcams and a microphone. Telerehab, at least the way that RespondWell does it, includes biometric devices to get a bead on what the patient is up to, for better or for worse, even if the patient and the physical therapist are not directly interacting. This matters because bad things happen when a patient does not do their follow-up PT, and many patients simply can't afford the follow-up care, or maybe they're rural and don't have easy or even moderately easy access to it. My name is Stacy Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Ted. Thanks, Stacy. It's good to be here. Let's talk about your company, RespondWell, for a sec. RespondWell bills itself as a tele-rehabilitation platform, which is a combination of words I had never heard before. Is there a difference between telehealth and tele-rehabilitation? There is a difference, but I think there you can you can think of telehealth as an umbrella under which a whole bunch of different kinds of digital solutions live. And that telehealth umbrella might be a generalization when we think about healthcare three or five years from now, or depending on how long you've been in this business, you might think about it like that today. But telehealth essentially means using technology to deliver support to patients when you can't be present. And so the tele-rehab side of that is using technology to deliver care around therapy when a therapist can't be there. Basically, telehealth is getting fancy is what I'm hearing there. Well, I think it's sprouting a whole bunch of different shoots, right? It's like a plant and it, it, as it grows, it becomes a little bit more capable and fulfills its purpose better. And I think we're seeing the seeds have been sown for telehealth for many, many years. And now we're seeing even organizations like CMS recognizing the value as well as big provider and payer organizations recognizing the value. And so it's really starting to take root. The government obviously thinks it's legit enough to give it a CPT code, CPT 99490, right? That's right. But on the other hand, I was just reading something the other day, which said that, and here's the quote, if you look at the stats, very few people even understand what telemedicine is. You know, so on one hand, we've got the whole idea being legitimized and reimbursed for. Then on the other hand, we've got, it seems, some sort of failure to communicate. Consumers have been using telehealth for years and years. They just didn't know that's what it was called. Ultimately, if anybody's using even Google to find out whether they should be worried about, you know, that red, itchy sore on their foot, they're using telehealth. 
a broader definition than I've heard before. And if we're talking about the reimbursement code, that is, from what I understand, primarily reimbursing or entirely reimbursing only synchronous telemedicine. In other words, you've got an actual, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm only pretending to know what I'm talking about now. It only reimburses if there's a live person on the other end of the wire. That's true, but that's changing, and it's changing really, really rapidly. This line you can draw in telehealth between synchronous and asynchronous, and I wish there were better words than that because that can be very confusing to some people because essentially it's are you talking to somebody or are you leaving them a message? And on the leaving them a message side, obviously it's significantly more complicated because if today, for instance, you call and leave a message at your doctor's office and say, it hurts when I do this, and then I'm due back, talk to the doctor, and he told me that your complaint is common and here's what you should do. Is that synchronous or asynchronous? Is that reimbursable or not reimbursable? Actually, in the CMS world, that is a billable event, although it is obviously asynchronous. Today, you have apps that are communicating with care team members or with your doctor directly, and they're responding But there is a billable code associated with that. It's not directly titled telehealth as a code, but that's your doctor providing you care. There's a lot of squishiness here that I think is going to get firmed up as we move forward. And the whole ecosystem of telemedicine apps that exist in the marketplace that are really originally thought of as being consumer direct, they're delivering something to you directly. And as a result, you may be paying a monthly fee or paying nothing at all, that those asynchronous apps are falling into a category that are really going to be part of telehealth. Where do you see providers and payers starting to get the notion that using these mobile apps or other technologies, it could help them further their organizational imperatives? There's kind of this change in the hierarchy of decision-making, both from the point of view of a payer or a provider and a change in the decision-making really on the part of a consumer. And that hierarchy starts with, am I going to get reimbursed for this? Am I going to get paid for providing this service? Am I going to have to pay for providing this service? So let's just take one category like CGR, the uh, total joint replacement bundled program that is out there today from CMS. That essentially says to a provider, we're going to pay you one price, no matter where you are across the country, for these different kinds of care underneath this category of care, let's say knee replacement, and both on a pre-surgical basis for the actual surgical event and for post-surgical. But there's only going to be one price. And then you're going to fit underneath that one price all of the activities necessary to get to a good outcome. That's a different model. And so as a provider, for instance, the way you're making decisions are really going to be based not on what's the code for this? What's the code for that? It's going to be based on what's the care I have to deliver under this one price in order to get to a good outcome. And so that changes some of the choices that you can make during the different stages of that episode of care. And it could be prehab. I need to really make sure this person is informed and educated about what they need to do post-surgery or post-surgical. Now that you're there and I need to tell you exactly what you need to do on day one, what to look out for, when to call me. None of those decisions necessarily have to be driven by whether there's a billable code. They only have to be driven by whether this is the right thing to do and can I afford to do them and stay in business under this kind of single reimbursement for this episode of care. 
I can definitely see the use case in what you just described for anyone participating in, like you said, a bundled payment pilot or shared savings arrangement. For everyone else, though, would they fall into the fee-for-service, I'm looking at that CPT code reimbursement model? I could also see it for employers if you're actually the one paying for that. But is there a third category of reasons why something like the total joint replacement example that you just gave might be appealing, if only from a cost perspective or a reimbursement perspective, forgetting the clinical quality improvements for a sec? Well, sure. So like many, many things in life, we've got to answer with a, it depends. So (laughs) it depends. And so let's say you're in a rural setting. And availability of physical therapy, for instance, is just low, or it comes at a very high cost. I've got to drive two hours. Then the choice becomes, can I deliver this care or not? And can I deliver it at a cost that even if it's not reimbursable, or if it's reimbursable under some program that it has complications to it, can I still provide the care? And probably more importantly, especially in high deductible insurance plans, from a patient's point of view, can I afford the care? Can I actually have confidence, let's say, in an MCL tear and we've got a, a knee surgery that's occurred, but I live two hours away from therapy. Can I still go home after surgery, not have to stay in a high cost environment, high patient cost environment, let alone a high provider cost environment? Can I go home? And when you think about that scenario, it applies to millions and millions of healthcare consumers. And it may not be completely obvious to people like us that live in metros and we just have to walk down the street to get care and we've got tons of choices. But if you live two hours from a metro, your choices are diminished significantly. And so that's kind of one example of why it still today means either getting care or not getting care, irrespective of the reimbursement side of it for that particular population. And then there are many, many other examples. Do you feel like a consumer or a patient that has cottoned onto this well enough that they might choose a given provider simply because they have a better aftercare program? That a patient might think to themselves, huh, I'm going to need physical therapy and I understand the value of physical therapy, for example, or that aftercare that I'm going to get. And I know I can't drive two hours to my appointment or I know the cost is prohibitive or any of the other things that you just mentioned. So I'm going to choose a provider based on their availability of a program like this. I'll give you a really non-obvious analogy. And this just comes out of my background because I don't come from a healthcare background. I actually come from a financial services background. And I originally came into my working life, the computer science and a finance background. I went to work for a bank and I was a CFO for a bank, a credit union actually. And one of the dilemmas that credit unions have is they can't build branches everywhere. They actually are prevented from doing that. So it's not like you can just find Chase branch or find a Bank of America branch. If you're a credit union member, you have to go to them. And so it becomes a real difficult decision if you move away from where your credit union is because you can't get there. And so we invented this thing in the early 90s called online banking. And online banking said, don't worry. 
if you move to Virginia and you're in an Oregon credit union because you can use online banking to do almost everything that you need to do. So when I moved to Virginia, let's say I moved to Virginia, I didn't actually move to Virginia, but if I did, (laughs) I didn't have to look around and find the choices of the banks that I could walk in the front door at the branch. That brought big change into consumer decision-making. Once the availability of online financial services began to take hold, people started to make brand choices and service provider choices based on almost 100% based on convenience, obviously based on quality and based on a few other things. So to answer your question about healthcare, are people going to make healthcare choices driven by the convenience of care delivery? Can I get the patient education I need to get without actually going into the doctor's office, sitting in the waiting room, seeing him for 10 minutes, having him tell me this is what I need to know and this is what I need to look out for? Or can I just do that from my kitchen table? Probably what it's all going to boil down to is the patients and consumers really understanding what the value is and the importance is of that aftercare. It's pretty evident if you can't get 20 bucks and you need 20 bucks <laughs> um, that there's a problem. But sometimes I wonder whether people really appreciate the fact that their knee will never get better unless they do the PT. Sure. Oh, yeah, of course. And But as an informed consumer who's also become informed about what's the right phone to buy, what's the right car to buy, where's the right house to buy, I know that I have a place where I can go to get those answers. If my motivation is to feel better and to return to function, return to whatever it is in my life I want to return to, then I'm going to go search out the information necessary for me to achieve that goal. But even further, if I can get a provider who's going to provide to me a capability that allows me to know what I'm doing is correct and is at the right frequency and get information about, yeah, it's going to hurt when you do this at first and you're just going to have to understand that's part of the healing process, but later it's not going to hurt and you're going to be able to walk around the block. That's more than I'm going to get just on the internet. That's what I'm going to be getting from a trusted source. There's actually an article in the Washington Post, I think yesterday, and the title of the article is Hospital Discharge. It's one of the most dangerous periods for patients. And then there was paragraph after paragraph, which of examples proving that point. A lot of it had to do with medication errors. The example was actually a heart-wrenching story about how a woman was discharged with a heart condition and she somehow or another wound up taking home a very brutal cancer drug. It wound up actually killing her. Mm. There's quote after quote, you know, the most risky transition is from the hospital to the home. Do you feel that telehealth has a potential to assist in that way? If we all understand that discharge from a hospital, medication errors happen. The other thing that often happens is pain management issues. People get hooked on things when they get discharged from the hospital. Sure. Can telehealth be used in such a way that will ameliorate some of those very common issues? Let's take something that's even more common and and specifically related to physical therapy. The kind of physical activity that's necessary, let's say, on a post-surgical shoulder. I mean, that could be post-surgical mastectomy. It could be post-surgical rotator cuff. It could be anything. And, And the lack of adherence to some sort of therapeutic regimen that actually moves your arm can result in a frozen shoulder. It can result in things that are are not good. It's not a good outcome. And But once the patient leaves that high-cost care 
giving presents. You don't know if they're doing it. You don't know until they come back and they've got an issue or they come back and they don't have an issue. Technology can monitor, obviously, with the patient's agreement and record whether the patient is doing that work. If they're not doing the work, it can alert. If they are doing the work, then it doesn't have to engage that high-cost resource. And so technology, for sure, can be that adherence driving system that keeps costs low on the provider side, but keeps care high on the patient side. And I know that sounds a little pie in the sky and, you know, can technology do everything, but there's some very basic things that technology can do. Did you show up and do the work? Was it you? When you did it, did you do it the way we asked you to do it? And that's what we can do. And that's fundamentally, that's what a person does when you come in for physical therapy. They want to know that you've got range of motion. They know that you've got, you're returning to strength or returning to balance. We can do those things with technology and then alert that high cost caregiving resource, that professional for those people that are not adhering, and then they can address it in the way that they would have normally. But for those people that are adhering, you don't have to really put the burden of cost on that resource. Some of the things that you just mentioned, I know that are within RespondWell's sweet spot. I will let you explain it, but I know that RespondWell has an ability, it's, you're hooked up to connect or something so that you can check all of the things relative to the patient's range of motion that you just described. That's right. And so both the Connect sensor and, and another sensor from Intel called RealSense are all part of kind of the the consumer computing landscape that over the next three to five years are going to be just part of your computing life, right? Today, you've got a webcam on your phone and, you know, you use that for FaceTime and, and for other, for p- taking pictures and, and so forth. And you've got a webcam on your computer. Well, those webcams are migrating to be much, much more capable and specifically more capable around facial recognition, skeletal tracking, the kind of data collection about human movement that's necessary to determine musculoskeletal health or in a post-surgical setting for uh, hip replacement, whether you can place weight on that impaired side that would represent, you know, recovery. So for sure, we use those capabilities today in the Kinect motion sensor. We're using them with the RealSense motion sensor that's from Intel that's being built into more and more computers. And even companies like Apple have uh, purchased, they purchased this Israeli company called PrimeSense, who was the kind of the, or, the original developer of motion sensor cameras. And so we will see at some point our phones from Apple and our computing devices from Apple that have that capability as well. So RespondWell is building the application capability to take advantage of that hardware, but we're not in the hardware business because that's a hard business to be in. And we really need to follow the general consumer computing device world and take advantage of all that capability so that everybody can stand in front of their computer and have their computer with application software like we have from RespondWell, evaluate their health and help them return to function. In a nutshell, what RespondWell offers is you have a software platform or a platform of some kind, which is hooked up to some of these motion sensing devices, like for example, Connect. Would the consumer have to have the Connect themselves and you just provide them with the software that matches hardware that they already have? Or are you sending them home with kind of a kit? We do both if the consumer has that locally and we have a kit that we send people home with. However, we don't assume that a consumer is going to be willing to do either. 
And we don't even assume, for instance, that a consumer is going to download software off of a Windows store or an iTunes store in order to get our application. It just works in the browser as well. And when it works in the browser, then we just use the webcam. And the webcam can't sense your movement, but it can record it. And so we create something called a video therapy report. And that essentially records that you're present, records that you've accessed the application. We ask you questions after each about your pain level and about whether you had comfortable range of motion. And then that information goes back. But that doesn't place the burden on the consumer of having any of that stuff. They really just have to have a computer and a browser. And so we deploy what we generally call, we deploy to the lowest friction common denominator. What's the easiest access people can have, but still generate the best result? Now, if we've got an environment in which you've got a complicated recovery period that includes the intervention synchronously as well as asynchronously of a care provider, then we may send you home with a connect sensor and have somebody set it up for you and then collect that data because it's it's really necessary. But if you're incredibly enough post-surgical knee or hip, often if you adhere can be a relatively rapid recovery anymore, but just because of the advances in technique and the advances in implantable devices. And so I think as the population explosion in the elderly and people that are over 50 drives huge growth as it has for the last few years and is predicted to for the next 50 years in joint replacement, sending people home with an application that has a motion sensor is going to be done best if they have a computing device that already has all that stuff. And if they don't, to just use the webcam and just record their recovery and do that for everybody that you can, because if they adhere to their therapy, they're going to return to function faster and better. What does that look like on the back end? So say I'm a patient and I am religiously doing or not doing my knee exercises. Who is realizing that I have or have not done the work and what happens then? Programmatically, we can determine whether you've authenticated, you've, you've put in your credentials. And then if you think about a, you can just think about the kind of report that ever, anybody who's ever been in any kind of work setting, you read a tabular report and it's got a description of something and it's got uh, maybe a picture. And for us, that kind of report is kind of an organic living document. And it literally has a video. We take a video from the webcam of the person next to a description of what they should be doing next to the comments they've made about doing it. And then it shows them doing it in video. So while you can't hold up a piece of paper and actually see a video move on it, but you can look at that on your screen as a provider, a care team member, scan what the patient has said about what they've done, see that it is the patient and see them moving. And it's the same when we use a motion sensor technology, we superimpose a skeleton on, on that moving video. And then you go to the next movement that you ask them to do. And so we, that's why we call it a video therapy report. So it's like they're standing there in front of you. You ask them to do something, they do it, you can observe them, except they don't have to be standing in front of you. They're at home doing it, but you can still see it and make decisions from it. Is that happening synchronously or is, is the care team person looking at a whole bunch of them later and then following up or something? Well, it's, it's definitely happening asynchronously. So they're not, the patient's not really there doing it. However, because of the way the technology works, it can triage, right? It's in, you know, everybody, at least I do, I don't know if everybody does, but I, I go back to the, uh, you know, I learned what the word triage meant when I watched the TV series MASH when I was younger. And you go into a room full of hurt people and look at each one of them and determine which one needs care right now. And the ones that don't need care right now, 
they can be set aside and you can address them later. But you need to go to the highest acuity patient first because obviously in certainly that setting, you don't want somebody to die if you can help them. So that video therapy report has the ability to do that same kind of triage. Are we getting any feedback or are we observing any difficulty? Feedback that says there's pain that seems out of the ordinary or are we observing difficulty or are we observing them just not being compliant? They do two things, but the rest of the things they're not doing at all or they're not doing them correctly. The technology can measure that and triage that. And so there is a few of our customers today, this new department, which is called digital therapy. And the digital therapies department's role is to look at this kind of triaged reporting system to look at the people that are having difficulty and determine whether they want to bring them in or not. Um, For the people that aren't having difficulty and they're reporting compliance and they're reporting decreased pain, they can be set aside because they're doing fine. Again, it's a silly analogy, but it's just based on my background. The early financial institutions that made progress and had success with online banking were the ones that actually created an online banking department instead of sending their customers to the branch when their computer didn't work. Because if they sent them to the branch when their computer didn't work, the branch people said, I don't know. I'm, I, I don't know computers. I, I don't know how to help you. Plus, I'm being paid to be here. Why don't I just help you? So it's kind of counterintuitive to ask them to help. But if you set up a digital therapy department and their responsibility is to really review patient compliance at home and patient care at home and the technology can triage and only send those that are really need the help, then all of a sudden you've got three people in a digital therapy department that are servicing a thousand people that are in the field as opposed to that one-to-one relationship that synchronous care forces you into. It's interesting that you had mentioned that the digital therapy departments, because I was just thinking there's that old quote, one man's waste is another man's income, Um, that, you know, this this aftercare is a huge business. So we're being a little disruptive here, my friend. I think that's the automation cycle that drives our culture and drives the world. It's transferring those jobs from maybe home care jobs that had some growth potential, obviously, because of an aging population to technology jobs that can really support fundamentally better care and lower cost care. And so if you're living in a world in which there was a surplus of money and a surplus of caregiving people, that would be one thing, but we're not. We're living in a world in which the economics are kind of inverse to our growing needy population, and not just in the United States, but in China, in Japan, in countries in Europe, there are young populations in the world, but they're the emerging economies. They're the African economies and the Indian economies that are driven by the young. But the, the economies that are we're, we're delivering care in are not young, and they're inverted in terms of the population mix. And so without automation, how are we going to care for these people? That is a very good question. And on that note, let me ask you, where can people find out more information about RespondWell? Should they be interested? You know, RespondWell.com is the best place. We've been super lucky to be able to work with a lot of partners and produce a lot of video content that really describe different use cases, both on the provider side and the patient side. And so that's a really good place to get information. I thank you so much for being on the program today, Ted. You bet. Thank you, Stacy. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. 
another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.